Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Today, I come bearing a gift, a special summer edition of Talking in the Library. We've added this episode to feature a powerful new exhibition that opened at the Library Company at the end of May. From Negro Pass to Afro Futures draws upon fragments of Black Americans' past from their drawings, love letters, poems, songs, speeches, and protests to help visitors grapple with the place of Black creative genius in the quest for a people's liberation. For this episode, I've handed the mic to Mike, Mike Barsanti that is, the Edwin Wolf II Director of the Library Company. Dr. Barsanti speaks with the Director of the Program in African American History and the Curator of From Negro Past to Afro Futures, the inimitable Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens. In the conversation that follows, Barsanti and Owens discuss the experience of shaping this extraordinary exhibition with five graduate students from Queens College at the City University of New York. Welcome to Talking in the Library. This is the Edwin Wolf, the second director of the library company, Mike Barsanti, talking to you for a change. I had to grab the microphone away from Will Fenton in order to interview Professor Deirdre Cooper Owens, who we're talking to today about her work, but in particular about an exhibition here at the library company that she has curated called From Negro Past to Afro Futures, Black Creative Reimaginings. Before we start talking to Professor Cooper Owens, I just wanted to give you a brief bio of her. Professor Cooper Owens is the Charles and Linda Wilson Professor of History and Medicine and the Director of Humanities and Medicine at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She's also an Organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer. She's published essays, book chapters, and popular blog pieces on a number of issues that concern African-American experiences. Her first book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, won the 2018 Darlene Clark Hine Book Award from the OAH as the best book written in African-American women's and gender history. We are very proud to have Professor Cooper Owens as the director in our program in African-American history, and very proud to be able to talk to her today about this exhibition. So welcome. Thank you for having me at my job. (laughs) (laughs) So the way we start talking in the libraries, we start by focusing on an object. Describe the book that we're looking at right now. So this book is an Ethiopian sacred text from the late 17th century, from 1682, and it depicts the homilies of Michael or St. Michael. And I remember seeing this book for the first time, actually when I was hired in May of last year. I was explaining to you and Jim Green and a number of others around the table my ideas about what this exhibition could be. And as I was explaining that I really wanted to have a kind of framing of the contributions of African-Americans and those in the diaspora that aren't typically known to the larger public, Jim Green said, I think I know what you're talking about. And he brought this book that I erroneously thought was an Ethiopian Coptic Bible because I had never seen anything like it. And I remember him telling me about the way the book was made, the, the leather and the vellum pages and the kind of cloth in between to preserve it. And the pictures look as if they were painted yesterday. I mean, the colors are really bright and striking. And so for me, I knew that this would have to be the kind of anchor of the exhibition because it was so 
visually striking, but also it served as a counter narrative to the ways that people have thought about early African civilizations, sometimes focusing on Northern Africa with Egypt and not necessarily focusing on the contributions of those from East Africa. The book, I have to just echo what Professor Cooper Owens was saying. It is stunning. The book is a folio size. It's not a small book. This is a book that is maybe 20 inches tall or so. And the pages, which are vellum, look like they were just written on yesterday. They're clean. They are white. And the colors think like really vibrant yellows and greens, really vibrant ochres and reds and oranges. And the skin tones of Michael, for instance, are this really beautiful brown, beautiful tannish, orangey brown. And I know that for Professor Cooper Owens and for the students that were helping curate this exhibition and more on them in a minute, this image, this book and the images within it really once, once they saw it, once you all saw this book, there was no question about what was going to be the sort of star of the show, oh, that yeah. this then began to drive the design features of the show. This then began to drive a whole lot of other things because this just seemed to glow in how it also told the story. I should also contextualize a little bit of what Professor Cooper Owens is saying about the show by saying that several years ago when we decided we wanted to do this show, we were aware that there were two significant anniversaries that we had in mind. One was the anniversary of the first arrival of enslaved Africans in an English colony, the arrival of enslaved Africans in the Virginia colony in 1619. And the other is the 50th anniversary of an exhibition by the Library Company and by the Historical Society of Pennsylvania next door that was called the Negro History Exhibition. That was really a landmark exhibition in African-American and Africana studies in the United States. It was certainly a landmark for the library company and for HSP. And I also think that when we look at what was going on in April of 1969 when that exhibition mm-hmm. opened, it was really an extraordinary moment. But we wanted to commemorate those. And in talking about this exhibition with Professor Cooper Owens and the moment that she just described in looking at this book, What was really important was to make central the thoughts and dreams and plans of Africans and of African Americans themselves, and not the perspectives of other people, of white people, even of abolitionists or other folks telling the stories of Africans and of African Americans, but rather what are the thoughts and dreams and plans and culture of these peoples as they, in Africa and as they were transplanted here. That was exactly it. I didn't kind of rule with a, a iron fist. I really wanted the curatorial interns, and I will talk about them in a moment, but I really wanted them to have a say, but I was adamant that this would be the kind of framing of the exhibition with this sacred text from Ethiopia, because there's something about seeing yourself in a book, not necessarily depicted in glorious ways or unrealistic ways or ugly ways, but in just a way where you exist. And so the kind of visual images, I think, are really, they really resonate with young people, but also a lot of our visitors, because they saw themselves in this book, right? And they saw themselves uh, depicted by people who were thinking towards the future, right? This was a book that was to be preserved. This was a book to teach lessons. This was a book to, in some ways, 
curate the cosmology of Coptic Christians in East Africa. And so when the students saw this, they were on board. I knew that we would use an image from the text and I wanted it on the signage. That was something that I was pretty clear about as well. I didn't really collect many of the other items, but I was clear because I knew when African-Americans in particular, people from the diaspora, see themselves represented, they tend to come. And this has been proved time and time again. So whether it's a library company or the Smithsonian or the Studio Museum in Harlem, whenever there are exhibitions where people see themselves depicted in ways that are honest and accurate, they will come. And so often when I'm here and I'm interacting with visitors and I will say to them, you know, welcome, but ask the question, what brought you in? And they often will say the signage. I was really interested in coming in and just kind of seeing what this is about. Um, But also, we are a history cultural institution, but there's a nod to the future, right? And that's where the Afrofutures portion comes in, that they saw the kind of vision of these early historical subjects and actors. Our curatorial interns, and there were five of them, they were all graduate students at Queens College, which is a part of the city, University of New York system, and it's where I work up until May, our uh, curatorial interns were Jermaine Dennis, who recently graduated with a dual master's in history and also an MS in library science, Julian Gonzalez, who also graduated with the same degree, and Kamani Maglor. Our two current graduate students who are involved with the exhibition, Carolina Acosta and also Tamara Potts-Coven. And so they all had different themes to tackle. So they range from politics to ephemera, to religion, to ancestral arts and culture. And so there was a way that they also wanted to present counter narratives to the kind of standard understanding or and sometimes misunderstandings of early Africana history. And so it really is an exhibit that is not linear in many ways. It's, it's very different because you have five different folk who are working around this idea, but it's still compelling because I think there's something that visitors sense about the kind of honesty that these curatorial interns wanted to portray through the objects that are displayed. So the degree of difficulty here is very high. It is. Right. You're a scholar. Mm-hmm. Your main mode of production are books and articles. So for one thing, to be asked to curate an exhibition to tell a story with objects is already a different kind of language for you to be speaking. And then to add on top of that, we're not just asking you to curate an exhibition. We're actually asking you to work with graduate students who themselves have never curated an exhibition. Let's make that even harder. Mm -hmm. Let's make those graduate students live 100 plus miles away (laughs) and with a collection that they're not very familiar Mm -hmm. with. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, how is it different to curate an exhibition than it is to write a book? But as I've been thinking about that question, it seems like, well, actually, your challenge goes even farther than that. It's how do you curate an exhibition remotely with five master's right. students? But just like telling us, how, did, how is it different from other work you've done? Yeah, You know, it's, it's interesting. So if we think about the five themes that are in this exhibition and liken that to a book, in some ways, I served as the editor. Like, you know, I kind of think of myself as a developmental editor. So I was able to 
ask them to revise certain things, to edit out others. And so there's a kind of editorial role that I played that was easy because my book was edited. (laughs) So, you know, I, I was on the receiving end. So I was really hyper aware and sensitive to how how to communicate with the students in that way. It was really important for me to have the students become immersed in the digital collections because for many of them, this was the only way that they were really getting a sense of of what we had. I think we took three trips here. So understanding the digital collections, particularly from the standpoint of library science and information science, was important. The other thing is to Learning to let go when you're an editor, you know, you can't do it all. And I have to trust their instinct and their expertise. And so that was something that's a a bit hard for me. I think anybody in a leadership position can sometimes have control issues. And so it was a learning experience for me to be able to trust them as they were making their way through the exhibition. And there were times when I had never thought about a particular subject or topic in the ways that they did. We're different in terms of our generation, our socialization. They're interested in library science. I'm interested on the history end. And so even when I worked at museums, they had always been history museums. And I had always been in the education department and not on the curatorial side of things. And so it was interesting for me, too, to understand how to view a space from the eyes of a curator. And so to look for things like outlets and the colors of walls and what wallpaper would look like and the cutting of a cradle to hold an object like that Ethiopian sacred text or something that's really small, a pamphlet or a pan fan. And so to be able to think about all of those things and the placement of those things brought a kind of creative joy for me that I don't necessarily get when I'm writing because writing is very solitary and you're kind of just alone with your thoughts. And so it was was good to be able to bounce that off with the students, but also with my colleagues here who are experts in what they do. So Jennifer Rosner was a godsend. She's so creative and she has, you know, so many years, really decades of experience in this that she was really the person kind of leading us along the path technically. And then Jasmine Smith, understanding the materials in a way that I didn't because she is a librarian and I'm a historian. And so being able to guide me around understanding finding aids, because for me, it's like finding aids are all about who gifted a thing. And I'm very much interested in the people who might have produced it. And so, you know, understanding how to strike that balance when you want to tell the stories of the people actually in the documents as opposed to who gifted the documents. I'm really glad you mentioned Jennifer Rosner and really glad you mentioned Jasmine Smith. Jasmine is the staff person who was our, you know, our full-time on-site staff person who was the point person for this exhibition. It's her exhibition as much as anyone else's. And she had the really difficult challenge of coordinating between our internal, managing the budget, coordinating all of the internal pieces helping the students with their, you know, find the materials they were looking for, presenting them with other options. Jasmine did a wonderful job. And again, something she had never really done before, but she's a very thoughtful and meticulous person and and really managed this exhibition in a brilliant way. I wanted to just say one other word about the students. This was an experiment for us. It was a bit of a risk for us, but it's 
it's a risk that we really wanted to take because I think one of the things about the library company is that we have the benefit of having extraordinary scholars come to work here. And we don't do enough or we haven't done enough traditionally to take advantage of the work that they do or to really benefit from those outside eyes and experiences. And especially with people who were younger. As we were building up to this exhibition, there were a number of people just wondering, like, we have a bunch of young people who are going to be picking items. Do we really want to take this incredibly important part of our collection and basically trust these students with it? We did. And the result is something fabulous. And it's giving an opportunity. I think the generational difference from our normal curation, the racial ethnic differences, it's really important to have those perspectives interpreting and re-presenting our collections. Yeah, it was important because I think for many of those students, and they, they represent the diaspora. So from Colombia to Dominica to Jamaica to the Dominican Republic and America via the South to Uptown in New York, that means Harlem. So, you know, there was a sense of them seeing themselves. So for instance, Tamara Potts Coven is a young mother. And there is a striking image of two infants back then. They were called two Negro infants on a field of cotton that had been picked. And although some people might see that as these babies being linked to a kind of peonage, you know, I have to remind others, my mother picked cotton during the summer to go to college. She grew up middle class, but she lived in the country. So guess what students did? There There were no McDonald's in that little teeny town. But there were tobacco fields and cotton fields. And so that was their summer work. And so it didn't mean that she had a life of peonage. It just meant this was the summer job in a rural agricultural society that would allow her to get some extra money to go to college. And so for her, she saw beyond the kind of common narrative of being linked to a lifetime of poverty. And she saw her son in those kids. And she saw a kind of striking image of ebony hued children on this kind of pure white field of cotton. And so for her, there was something about seeing the hope and the potential of these children, right? And that's a very different narrative. We had a review where somebody was saying the very opposite. People like and dislike what they like and dislike, subjective. But there was a way, once again, I think the counter narrative of our own understandings of the past have been complicated. So that was one thing. I just, I don't know, I just had a kind of intuitive feeling that these students would be able to bring something that was new and fresh. And in some ways, I like things that are a bit disjointed. You know, I don't think history has to be neatly tied up with a bow. And so there is something that I like about that in some ways, that we were all novices and that you were able to along with some of the other senior staffers here, were able to kind of trust that vision that that we had. The other thing that is really interesting that has kind of struck me every time I walk through the gallery is behind the scenes, the way community was being acted out. And so there were a community of scholars, students, who were really interested in having a different narrative around the Black past, but also the Black future. And so it was one where people are now able to say they were part of institution building 
And that was really important because the documents displayed show the kind of community focus of those early African-Americans, particularly those who lived in the United States during the antebellum era. And so it was really community focused. And so it felt really good for me to be able to say, hey, let me bring some others along. And so now, you know, particularly for the three graduates, Jermaine Dennis, Kamani McClure, and Julian Gonzalez, they have on their CVs a linkage to this really elite institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia, and that means something because you don't see a lot of black and brown curators, particularly black and brown men, black and brown men, some of whom are queer, right? You don't see a lot of that in museums that are not black or brown controlled museums. It's really important for them to be able to go out as representatives who have been linked with this institution that's so well respected. That's part of what we're trying to do is trying to give scholars opportunities, including but also beyond the traditional academic opportunities of publishing monographs, publishing articles and conference papers. What happens when we also give them keys to our exhibitions and allow that kind of scholarship, the kind of work and perspective that they bring to our collections and allow them to use other elements of our public platform in ways that help them professionally and help us by just diversifying the perspectives that we have. Right. About community, you talked about how one of the things that came out of the exhibition were items that helped to tell the story of the communities that generated them. That was a very interesting point, or I think a really important point, because there's something about exhibitions as a forum, and there's something about exhibition that makes you think about the individual creator behind a particular object. We go and look at a painting by Cezanne. Right. Oh, that's a Cezanne right. painting. That man, Cezanne, made this. We don't tend to look at items in an exhibition and think of the community that made something. We don't tend to. You think about the individual who made, whose pen wrote that manuscript 150 years ago, whatever it was. And I think some of the artifacts that are on display, the wedding certificates, the scrapbooks, the other kinds of elements that just show how these artifacts document not just an individual's experience, but that of a community. It's a really important part of how that, how the exhibition speaks. Yeah. This was another one where I said, okay, this has to be included because I love Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Shout out to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, whose birthday was two days ago. Um, <laughs> but he was also, during his time, known as America's favorite Negro and most famous Negro poet. And so I love his work. And I remember going through the digital archives when you first presented this idea and learning we had sheet music by he and Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And so, of course, my focus was on the individual because I, on the personal level, love him. I think he's, he was a genius and learned about Samuel Coleridge Taylor and, and the import of his role in Western music. And then something happened. I realized when they got together in London, when Paul Lawrence, Lawrence Dunbar leaves America to travel to London to sell his books and to recite his poetry, Samuel Coleridge Taylor wants to partner with him, not simply because he is this really famous and adored poet, but there was a political moment that Samuel Coleridge Taylor saw where two creative geniuses could create an opera based in North Africa. Right? And so... They do that. First, they create African romances, and then they create the operetta Dream Lovers, and that's the one that we own, 
that was launched in 1898 in London. But there was a moment for me where I said, he's doing this for the community, right? How many operas were based, I mean, outside of Aida, right? But how many operas were based on North African people that also dealt with the issues, the political issues of the day? So miscegenation, Samuel Coleridge Taylor was the son of an African man, a Liberian-born man, and a white British mother. And so here he is dealing with that. Paul Lawrence Dunbar's wife was the very white-appearing Black woman in America. He was very dark-skinned. And so the ways that people responded to them, and they take these issues that have a global impact on Black and white communities, and they create something that is both beautiful, but also political in, in a way that I think people weren't necessarily expecting. What I like about that example, first of all, I want to footnote that by saying Professor Cooper Owens's sister, who is a trained opera singer and an extraordinary voice, came to our opening a few weeks ago and sang one of the pieces yeah. from this opera, and it was stunning. It was just a beautiful opening. It really is sort of cast a spell over the whole exhibition, I think, that we've yeah. been sustaining from day to day. But the other thing I liked about what you were just saying was it brings us back in some ways to the Ethiopian manuscript in this sort of transatlantic or transnational way of thinking about African and African-American culture. When this was first presented as one of the keystone items in the exhibition, I'm pointing at the manuscript again. My first like knee-jerk reaction was, well, it's not American. It's not African-American because it's Ethiopian. But as we talked about it, I realized that actually the erasure of that African history is one of the most damaging acts of violence yeah. against African-Americans that exists. And to talk about African-American culture without its background in Africa is to kind of perpetuate a way of telling that yeah. story. And that there's a way in which these connections outside of America help to place in a broader context the history of the African diaspora. Yes, you almost took me to church, and I don't go. <laughs> but, um, but yes, because there is something about having a sacred text produced by people who were never colonized by Europeans, and they were able to fight off Italian fascists who were trying to colonize them in the 20th century. And so to be able to have that as the centerpiece is really important, and to also understand the connections. Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, all of these institutions that these men founded, David Walker's appeal that's also a part of the exhibition, they were all inspired by the biblical passage, and Ethiopia shall stretch forth her hands to God, and princes shall come out of Egypt. That literally, for over a century and a half, had been the rallying cry of early Black nationalists, many of whom sprung forth from Philadelphia. And so there was a way that, although that isn't an explicit part of the exhibition, because we, are, you know, we only had 180 words um, to write text, but there is a way that these men, and they were primarily men, some women, but these men were looking in the Bible and finding themselves and saying they were a chosen people and using passages where Ethiopians and Egyptians were centered. Right? And centered in a way that spoke to a kind of liberatory politics for them. And so that's also really important, too, to be able to see something produced that's so beautiful and striking by skilled artisans that inspired folk that they didn't know 
would exist, you know, almost 200 years later. So I think that's also the beauty and the kind of quiet recognition of that diasporic connection that binds African-Americans, people from the Caribbean and the continent of Africa and Europe, thinking about Samuel Coleridge Taylor in ways that I think our exhibition does really beautifully. That's very well said. One of the things I'm curious about, though, is how has the experience of working on this exhibition and working with these materials, is it informing your next scholarly project? Is it helping you think about what you want to do next? Your first book, Medical Bondage, is a really stunning work of history that tells the story of American gynecology, bringing into the picture the African-American women and Irish-American women who were subject to incredibly brutal treatment in the name of medical research and advancement and trying to bring those names and those people back into the narrative and show the cost of that learning. It's a ways away from the subjects of this exhibition or the materials you've been working with. Does this work help you in the direction you're taking now? Is there anything you're taking with you or anything that inspires you? Yes. So I will put on the professorial cap for about 10 seconds and say that I am interested in now, and I think working with an exhibit where material objects are really important. So material culture is important. That's what draws people in. I'm interested in this concept called the haptic. And so if anybody looks at a smartphone, when you go to settings now, especially on an iPhone, it will say sounds haptic, right? And haptic. And so it really is about the manipulation of objects. And so in, you know, for me, when I'm talking to audiences about this second project, understanding the haptic and slavery and medicine, It's about the ways that touch served as a form of knowledge. And so being able to touch an object or a subject had value. But if you put that within the context of slavery, there's a political dimension that's added to it, where touch becomes hierarchical. So the first language that we learn when we're born, because we don't come out with speech, is touch. You touch your your mother or a nurse or a doctor or your father or whomever is there. And that touch is typically reciprocal. Well, when you add slavery into the mix and it's based on a power imbalance, the person who owns you or has power over you can touch you, but you can't reciprocate in kind. And so there's a way that I think scholars of slavery have not done enough work on the haptic. So those in literature and film studies and Folk who are engineers who do work on, you know, the creation of different kinds of instruments. So whether it's, you know, kind of surgical instruments or prosthetics, they are doing a lot of really great work on the haptic. But people in my field are not. And so it became even more important to me with this exhibition and thinking about these objects, what touch and the manipulation of objects can mean, particularly when you can't touch it. That's the thing. You go into museums. You can't touch the objects, right? So we control that. There is a power imbalance. And so there's something that I want to, I don't have a language for it yet, but I kind of want to get in like the messy spaces and try to understand it and articulate it. That's the ambitious project that won't probably come out until five to 10 years later. What really was important for me though is making sure to excavate the lives of Black women in particular. And so I have a second uh, a second or third project, depending on when it comes out, on uh, Harriet Tubman. I'm writing a popular biography of her. But to also think about the ways that she was able to manipulate 
the environment. That becomes really important when we're thinking about people who are fugitives and trying to understand escape and freedom and bondage and all of those things. And that became really clear in our exhibition because there was more inclusion of women and girls in particular and children, but we still don't have enough. And that's not the fault of the library company. It's just the fault of people who were collecting items that they thought were important many, 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 many years ago. And so for me, it becomes important to really excavate the lives of those folk who existed like a Harriet Tubman and to be able to try to make sense of the fragments that have been left for us. Well, that's a perfect place to end. Thank you, Professor Kugorowicz. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for this brilliant exhibition and for spending this time talking to me about your work, this work, your students' work. And we hope to see more soon. Yes, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this special summer episode of Talking in the Library. If Dr. Barsanti and Dr. Owens have piqued your interest in the exhibition, From Negro Pass to Afro Futures is free and open to the public until October 18th. Stop on by, and while you're here, visit our reading room to explore the library company's extraordinary collections in African-American history. We will return to our regularly scheduled programming on September 1st with a conversation with Dr. Scott Hearman about his new book, The Alchemy of Slavery. But before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't thank Nicole Scalessa, who has generously served as a producer of the first season of Talking in the Library. Nicole made this podcast a reality, and on a shoestring budget, no less. I'm grateful for her expertise, her generosity, and of course, her bottomless patience. As we enter Season 2, Anne McShane, the library company's digital collections archivist, will take up the mantle of producer, beginning, in fact, with this thoughtfully edited episode. Anne faces the daunting task of making me sound clever, or, more reasonably, ensuring that all the scholars whom I interview sound as crisp, clear, and cogent as they do in person. Welcome, Anne, and thank you for listening to Talking in the Library.